Welcome to Health Pulse Podcast. My name is Connor Delaney. I'm the CEO and President of Cleveland Clinic Florida. Today's episode is Checkup, the top five things to know about cervical cancer. In fact, you're going to learn about more than five things about cervical cancer. This is going to be a really interesting show. Every year, about 13,000 women across the US are diagnosed with cervical cancer, and about a third of them don't survive. And yet it should be a highly preventable and highly treatable cancer. So today we're going to bring awareness around the importance of early diagnosis, about new preventative treatments, about when and how to get screened, and what warning signs to look for. And then, if unfortunately you do have cervical cancer, how to be treated for it and treated well. So January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. And today's special guest is Dr. Adria Suarez-Mora at Cleveland Clinic, Florida. Dr. Suarez-Mora graduated from Northwestern, uh, where she did her residency, having been to medical school at Duke. And she did a specialty fellowship in University of Pittsburgh in gynecologic oncology. So thank you for being with us today to talk about cervical cancer. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So let's start off with something just to, to set the stage for people who may not be as familiar with uh, OBGYN and cancer. So tell us a little bit about the field you're in and the kind of things that you treat, Adria. Sure. I focus on any GYN cancer or precancerous lesion or any concern for GYN cancers. And so that would include the and uterine cancers, ovary cancers, cervical cancers, and more rare types of cancers like vulvar and vaginal cancers as well. Um, but I see patients with not just cervical cancer or cancer diagnoses, but also pre-cancer um, conditions of all of those organs as well, and any complex pelvic surgery um, patients. So this being January then and Cervical Cancer Month, we'll talk later about prevention and hopefully avoiding getting it at all. What are some of the early signs that patients might have that they might look for and that they might need to come to you or one of your colleagues to be checked? I think the most common sign, early sign of cervical cancer is abnormal bleeding. Um, and that could be abnormal bleeding after menopause or certainly prior to menopause, any change in menstrual bleeding or bleeding after intercourse. Um, sometimes there could be the vaginal discharge that is abnormal or pelvic pain. Unfortunately, these signs are very nonspecific, and so it's difficult for women to pick up on those early, but it's important to be in tune with your regular menstrual cycle or your regular um, pelvic, pelvic health and know when things are abnormal. So if you're postmenopausal and your periods have stopped, seeing bleeding is a bad thing, and it's pretty much always a warning sign. Is that right? Absolutely. Any bleeding after menopause deserves an evaluation by a gynecologist. Um, no woman should have bleeding. And I will say the most common reason for bleeding after menopause is benign things like atrophy of the uterus. But we certainly want to make sure that there's no evidence of any precancer or cancer in things like the cervix or the uterus. And so if somebody's symptomatic and worried, whether it's because of intermenstrual bleeding or, or postmenopausal bleeding. Um, with COVID and the pandemic now, people are often worried to come in. And I, I think one of the important reminders is that it's safe to come to hospitals. We have lots of processes for keeping patients safe and people we've found now from 10 months of research and practice don't get uh, COVID when they come to hospitals. So it's safe to come in. 
But one of the other ways we can help see patients and give them an idea is using virtual health and virtual health appointments. So how do you think that's helping us uh, get the word out to patients and more importantly, get the right information and, and help assess them? Certainly, I think that virtual visits are a really unique way to provide care in these unusual circumstances that we're faced with now. And it could be a way to triage symptoms and to counsel patients about what to expect. Um, but certainly with these kinds of symptoms, they usually warrant some kind of evaluation, including a pelvic exam. But it's nice to be able to do some of the counseling and triaging through a virtual visit um, and then decide which patients need to come in um, and to be evaluated. And certainly it is safe to do so. We have a lot of things in place to help protect patients and help protect providers. Um, and the clinic is doing an excellent job at that. Yeah, I, I think it's great. And, you know, it's the same for colorectal cancer. And we can often answer so many questions that when they come in, then they feel more comfortable seeing us and they understand what's going to happen as a next step. And especially if they live further away, we can have everything set up and ready to go. Right. So thinking, going back to cervical cancer then. So obviously, if patients have cancer of any type, they can present with early disease or late disease. And again, like any cancer, we like to see patients with the earliest disease possible so we can treat it. But for cervical cancer particularly, why is early intervention so important? How can we change treatment for patients and make it easier for them? Well, there's a big break in terms of treatment for cervical cancer, and we separate them between early or locally advanced cervical cancers. And the way cervical cancers spread are usually within the pelvis themselves. More rarely, they spread distantly like other cancers might. Um, and so when we have a small early cervical cancer, we can usually treat those with just surgery to remove the cervix and the uterus and hopefully avoid the use of any other treatments. In cervical cancer, both surgery and other treatments like radiation have been proven to be equally effective in treatment, um, but certainly if we can avoid the toxicities of some of the other treatments and cure patients with just surgery, then that would be great for patients. Um, and so detect early detection um, is important for that reason. Yeah, I think it's it's really important for, for everything. If you've got symptoms of any kind that you're not sure about, you get checked as early as possible. So maybe so, talk, uh, talk to us a little about, you know, how we put the treatment plans together, um, our tumor boards and uh, multidisciplinary care and why that's so important, particularly for a condition like cervical cancer. I work really closely with both a radiation oncologist and a medical oncologist here to be to come up with a plan specific for each patient. And so we know that each patient is different. And just because two patients have the same stage cancer, the same kind of cancer, their treatment plans might be different based on who they are, their values, their other medical problems. And so we work together to come up with a plan that is perfect for that patient. And so we come up with the plan for based on images of the tumor, pathology of the tumor. So we're working closely with our radiologist, our pathologist um, to get all the details together and put together the adequate treatment plan. Great. Yeah, I think, again, there's a lot of cancers that need multidisciplinary care, but particularly this, when you decide what's right for radiation, what's right for surgery, you've got to be treating well, some the pathology can be very important because maybe one of the things we'll talk about in a few minutes is sometimes the difficulty of even making the diagnosis correctly. 
Absolutely. But, but let's come back to that in a second. Thinking of treatment then, in many types of cancer, we can increasingly use minimally invasive surgery and laparoscopic mm-hmm. type surgery, but that's not always right for cervical cancer. So maybe educate us a little about that and, and what kind of cases are suitable. Obviously we do it, but it's selective. And, and what are your thoughts around that, Adrian? Our field uh, in the more common uterine cancers really went to minimally invasive surgery with big trials showing that outcomes from a cancer standpoint were the same and from a recovery standpoint were much better than the traditional open surgery. And so, you know, SGY and oncologists, we thought that that would hold true for other cancers like cervical cancers. And I think that one of the biggest surprises in our field was a big uh, random, randomized control trial that looked at women with early cervical cancer and randomized them to open or yeah randomized them to open versus minimally invasive surgery and that came out last year and the results actually show that there's an increased rate of recurrence and an increased rate of death from cervical cancer in some patients certain types of cervical cancers that had minimally invasive surgery and so that i caught a, a lot of us by surprise and has now made the decision about open versus minimally invasive surgery much more complicated um, that merits some discussion with the patient, review of the literature, and tailoring it to the specific kind of patient. I, mean, we, I wish that minimally invasive surgery was good for all patients from a cancer perspective, but I think that is first and foremost. We have to make sure that cancer outcomes are the same, and then we can get the benefits of earlier recovery and decreased surgical complications of minimally invasive surgery. But if cancer is outcomes are worse, then those benefits aren't worth it. Um, and so it is a very nuanced discussion and decision to make for cervical cancer in specific. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and we went through this 15, 20 years ago with colorectal cancer. We did randomized control trials and it's got to be focused around making sure that the cancer side of care is right. at least as good. And then if you can improve the short-term benefits, recover more quickly, fewer wound infections, fewer hernias, it's a plus. Exactly. But those aren't, those aren't enough if you're going to be more likely to die of cancer. So yet again, it's another condition that it needs really individualized care from people yeah. who are really experienced and specialized in the treatment of the disease. So, so think a little bit then about the treatment of the disease. So it starts with diagnosis and, and diagnosis is important and it's not always easy. Um, so let's, let's start with screening. So, so screening, talk about the importance of screening and, and, and pap smears and, and, and how the pathology is assessed and, and what things like that might matter to patients. Absolutely. I think the benefit of cervical cancer is that we have really good tools that we've been using for many, many years and fine tuning in terms of screening opportunities. So um, right now, currently we screen with both pap smear and HPV testing, and that screening starts early and very rarely do I see patients that have had routine screening with an advanced cervical cancer. It just doesn't happen anymore. Um, because we have really good methods of not just detecting, but treating early pre-cancer changes so that they never get to the cancer stages. And so screening is really important. This is one of those cancers where, I mean, I hope in the future, uh, patients won't need me for this because we have ways to prevent these kinds of diseases. And so um, screening has changed dramatically, probably in the last 10 years with the advent of HPV testing. And so we've been able to safely space out screening intervals 
and not miss or um, misdiagnose cervical cancers or advanced pre-cancers. And so that has caused some confusion in patients as, you know, 10, 20 years ago, patients were used to getting very yearly pap smears, and that's what um, was advocated for. And now screening intervals have changed between three and five years, depending on your age and your HPV status. And so it has caused some confusion, not just for patients, also for providers to up, keep up with the latest guidelines. Um, but coming to yearly exams, talking to your gynecologist about when is appropriate screening intervals for you is really important. Yeah, individualized care matters yet again. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then some of it can be done virtually, but obviously the pap smear itself has to be has to be in person. Right. So we can tailor that and, and shape that for patients. But even better is if we can prevent cancer. So here we are early in 2021 and the pandemic is raging and we're talking a lot about vaccination, but vaccination is really relevant for cervical cancer too. Maybe you talk a little bit about that. Yes, this is a huge point for me and, and quite certainly a, a passion for me because there is no very, very little other cancers that are completely preventable. We're not talking about early screening detection of precancers. We're talking about never having precancer or cancer of the cervix. And that's with the HPV vaccination. The HPV is a human papillomavirus. It causes the overwhelming majority of cervical cancers, except very rare forms. And in countries where HPV vaccination has become the standard, they've seen almost complete eradication of this disease. No more pre-cancer or cancer of the cervix. And so it is really important. Unfortunately, by the time women get to me, it's a little bit late because they've already had an abnormal pap smear, already have the HPV virus. And so this is for any woman who is a mother or an aunt or has you know, family with young children, that's the time to vaccinate. And so empowering women to be a voice for their family and their family members and vaccinate children early, as early as nine years old, can help prevent them from ever having to deal with this in their life. There's other cancers that HPV vaccination helps with as well. It's not just cervix cancer. Obviously, that's important for me as a GYN oncologist. Um, but this is really crucial and I think a huge public health concern that doesn't get enough press because it has so much stigma around HPV and being a sexually transmitted infection. And what if I vaccinate my child and you know they know that it's a sexually transmitted infection, but it shouldn't be that way. Not talking about it, being quiet. That's when we get into trouble. That's when we have to deal with advanced cancers that then we have difficult times treating. And, you know, I don't know any parent or family member that would want their children to have to deal with these kinds of problems. And so vaccinating and vaccinating early is certainly really important. Well said. I, I mean, I just, I couldn't, couldn't dream of saying it any better than that. And as a father with a daughter, absolutely agree. This yeah. is just important. It's and easy. it's not just daughters, it's daughters and sons. You gotta vaccinate everyone. I was just thinking of cervical cancer. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but for cervical cancer, you know, and it's it's yeah. easy and it works and it's safe and it's proven and it's just what we should be doing. So. Absolutely. And we have a lot of data to show that. I can yeah. prove it to you that this is safe, yeah. that this is effective. And yeah. we can't say that for a lot of things. And so it's obviously very important to me. Agree. Well, Adria, thank you very much. 
So to the listeners, uh, Dr. Suarez Mora has really told us an awful lot about the treatment um, of cervical cancer, how to find it early, how to prevent it. Uh, and actually, maybe, Adri, you'd remind us, so screening intervals, just important for patients to remember going away. So screening intervals, like I alluded to, have uh, changed a lot recently. And a lot of our guiding um, bodies have different uh, screening recommendations, and they have changed recently with the HPV vaccine. What I follow is at the start of 21 years, screening every three years. Um, with a pap smear. And then at the age of 30, that screening interval increases to every five years because we test for both pap smear and HPV testing. Now, some um, organizations like the American Cancer Society um, have moved towards just HPV testing and that's starting at 25 years old, but we're a little bit in flux. And so I would say that screening guidelines are changing the very least, it should be a conversation with your gynecologist. At the very least, every five years, sometimes every three years, if we're not doing the HPV testing as well for the younger women. Thank you. Very clear. So thank you again, Dr. Saras Mora, for your time, your incredible work, and how much you're helping our patients, and how much you've educated us and, uh, and, and them today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So to the listeners, as Cleveland Clinic, we're advocates and partners with the American Cancer Society. And if you're looking for further support or answers to many of your questions, another good place to look, as well as the Cleveland Clinic Florida website, uh, is cancer.org. I'd encourage you to join us for our next episode, which will be about vaccines and how we roll out vaccines for COVID-19 and how we beat COVID-19. And we will have Dr. Rick Rothman, who will talk about how we're bringing vaccines to patients, and Dr. Carla McWilliams, an infectious disease lead and expert at Cleveland Clinic Florida about how vaccines work and how safe they are. So this will be a great educational event, which is really timely and really topical for us all around the US and indeed around the world. Thank you again for your time today. If you would like to submit questions or ideas for future topics, please feel free to email me at healthpulse.com at ccf.org.